Welcome to this week's module. This week, we're going to talk about cardiovascular disorders and how we go about diagnosing them and what procedures are involved in that process. So the first thing I want to go over is the objectives. And essentially what we want to do is discuss the various different procedures that we do use in cardiac disorders, both in the primary care and acute care setting. I also want to identify the findings so the, the essential part is not so much what tests to run, but what do those tests actually mean? Now, these, these procedures that we're going to talk about do take a highly specialized group of people to interpret and give you the understanding of what the radiographic images, what the echo report sh uh, images show. So more so, I want you to understand, to identify what the written summary or impression of those studies mean to you in the clinical setting. And that's for your echo report, your EKG, cardiac cath, as well as stress tests. And in the last objective, I want you to identify what different labs, uh, bloods, blood labs you have available to you when evaluating someone with a pediatric cardiac disorder. So the first thing, we've already had an entire module on how to look at the ECG. But when we look at someone that is developing heart failure, um, there are some uh, criteria that you're going to be looking for when you're reading that. So here in this box comes from one of your required readings for this week. Talks about specific findings that you can <clears throat> use to diagnose heart failure. And that includes your left atrial enlargement, hypertrophy of the left ventricle, uh, low QRS voltages in the limb leads, ST changes, T wave inversion in the lateral leads, so on and so forth. So there are some specific things that you will find that will help you to diagnose heart failure. Now, when we look at echocardiograms, I can tell you that reading an echocardiogram takes years of practice and it takes a very skilled practitioner that's able to actually do the ultrasounds themselves as well as read them. So when we get our echo reports, you're going to get the actual written report from the cardiologist as to what they found. And everything from measurements of valves, ventricles, shunts, pressures that they've been able to estimate in the, in the ventricles or the atriums or the pulmonary vasculature, all that information is important to you when you're um, evaluating the results to help uh, interpret what's going on with your patient. The, the echoes um, we can use to establish what cardiac structures are present, and if there are any abnormalities, as well as tell us if there's systolic or diastolic dysfunction. So when we look at left ventricular systolic dysfunction, we're essentially evaluating what is that patient's ejection fraction. So we want to know how much blood or what percentage of volume that that patient's ventricle can actually pump to the rest of the body. So when we look at our ejection fraction, and there's, there's, there's different methods, right? There's the, there's a, uh, I'll talk about them here in a second when I show you an actual report. But there are two different readings, and it, it, it is used by different um, cardiologists. You know, some cardiologists favor the Simpson one, I believe, over the, 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 the additional ones that are available. Um, and some even looking at the shortening fraction. Now, the shortening fraction is the inner volume of the chamber, whereas the ejection fraction looks at the entire muscle itself, volume of the chamber, and how well it's able to, to push blood out to the, the bloodstream. 
So a normal EF is 55 to 60%. Nobody has a 100% ejection fraction. 55 to 65% is the norm. If you have less than 40%, that is considered that you're entering into heart failure. Patients that have very low ejection fraction may need additional devices, such as ventricular assist devices, to help them deliver their cardiac output, um, at least until you can get them transplanted or maybe put in uh, some type of mechanical um, device. Here is, is a real life report of a patient's left ventricular evaluation. And you could see here, the ejection fraction is actually measured in two different uh, styles of measurement. There's the Simpson measurement and the Tycholts. They are relatively the same. There is, very, there is some difference between the two, but there are some cardiologists that prefer one over the other. Now your shortening fraction is, is a calculation of your end diastolic pressure and your systolic pressure <clears throat> and anything greater than 29% is considered normal. Your LV diastolic dysfunction, um, this is when your ventricles do not relax appropriately, which, which they, your ventricles actually fill on relaxation. Um, and the measurements that they look at for diastolic function um, are, is the EA ratio, deceleration time, and IVRT. And cardiologists will, will, will actually put in their summary that there is some identified diastolic dysfunction. Other findings you will find is anything that they find um, with, uh, with, with the echo, right? So if they find that there's a, a shunt, or if there's a malformation, or if there's a coarctation, or if there's an inappropriate valve, they will describe that in the findings of the report. And then they will give you an ultimate or final summary. Um, and the summary will tell you, um, and they almost always say that there's suboptimal images, um, but they usually will tell you if there's any type of valvular regurge, if there's a, a normal size and function, um, for the right side and for the left side, and if there's anything else significant that they found during, during the report. Um, they won't tell you the ejection fraction typically here. Usually you have to go back or read through the report. Almost every hospital that I've worked at, and I'm pretty sure most institutions are relatively the same, you don't have access to look at the images themselves unless you work within the cardiology department or within the, the, the intensive care unit, um, only because they take so many images and they're very large files because they're usually video files and images and, and pictures and whatnot. So <clears throat> they don't give everyone access to that database because if, if too many people access it at once, it could um, cause um, issues with other people getting access to the images that they need to look at. Um, but the reports are typically in most EMRs found in the lab results, and they give out this written report, um, just like I've shown you here. Next, we'll talk about cardiac cath. Now, cardiac cath in children can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. Um, most of you who work in cardiac intensive care units or work with cardiology patients know that many times the cardiac cath does allow the, the cardiologist to look at all the different chambers of the heart, as well as looking at the, the vasculature, both before and after the heart and within the heart. 
and it also allows them to do some procedures. Uh, many of you have heard of the hybrid, um, the Norwood hybrid procedure, which portion of that is done in the cath lab. Um, also, they can close um, a, a patent foramen ovale or a small ASD with an implanter device. So there are some both diagnostic and um, therapeutic interventions that are done with the cardiac cath. Now, the cardiac cath, really, they, they put a catheter directly into the patient's femoral vein, and they go up in through the IVC, um, through the right atrium, right ventricle, and they can look at all the structures there. They can also inject dye to look to see where blood flow is or if they're shunting in certain areas so they can get good images of that. They also measure pressures, um, and that allows <clears throat> um, the, the cardiologist to understand if there's any type of pulmonary hypertension. They can measure that pressure both um, in the pulmonary vasculature as well as before. So you're looking at the right ventricular pressures. So if, if that right ventricle pressure is, is, is high, it's having to push against a higher force that can give them an information about um, that pulmonary, those pulmonary pressures. They can also measure a, a pulmonary wedge pressure. Um, they could look at chambers on both sides as well as vasculature. So the cardiac cap does give them a lot of information. And again, everything I just described earlier is, is here on the screen for you. You can um, assess pressures. You can look at pulmonary vasculature, cardiac vasculature. You can look, you can obtain biopsies. So they can do an endomyocardial biopsy in a cardiac cath. Um, they can help determine a diagnosis. Um, the surgeons really look at these um, images to determine how they're going to approach their surgery. So if there's anything in there um, that they might want to evaluate before surgery, the cardiac cath gives them that information. They can also do angiograms in the cardiac cath lab. Now, this is done a lot more frequently in the adult world, um, especially when they're looking at atherosclerosis or coronary, acute coronary um, syndrome, or if patients are actively infarcting or having ischemic changes, they can actually both, again, diagnose and provide intervention. So they can put in a thrombolytic and try to break up a clot or try to remove a clot. Um, they could look to see where the damages um, within the muscle itself lie or how, how poorly or adequately areas are perfused. So the angiograms give, give a lot of good information. The next we want to talk about is cardiac stress tests. Now these cardiac stress tests can be done um, in the cardiologist's office. Um, at UF, we have a cardiology, a congenital heart center um, for outpatient. Uh, so they can come in and do their stress test, or they can come in for their regular cardiology appointments. Um, and it's all housed in, in the same area. Why would you do a stress test? Well, this allows us to evaluate exercise capacity of a patient, specifically those that have had cardiac surgery or those that are about to have cardiac or yeah, that, have, that are usually after cardiac surgery. So we can evaluate how well they can tolerate exercise um, such as walking, running, or riding a bicycle. We can ass assess how well their medical and surgical management has been thus far um, for the patient. So um, we're allowed to look to see how strong, essentially how strong and effective the heart is with induced exercise. Um, you definitely do not ever want to do a stress test if someone has an acute infection if they have an exacerbation of a chronic illness, or if they're unstable. So we wouldn't take any of our ICU patients and, and bring them down to the stress to a stress test because we know for certain they would have 
um, some setbacks or it could be um, problematic. There are different types. Um, there's treadmills, there's cycle, there's bicycles where patients can actually ride a bicycle. Now it depends on the child's age and how well they can participate. Most younger children you can coach through a treadmill. It's sometimes more challenging if they've never ridden a bicycle before, how to keep that cadence and, and, and moving within the, the bicycle portion of it. Uh, or they may not fit. So those are, those are other things. Uh, and we can do these stress tests with or without EKG testing. And sometimes they'll do blood gases before and after too, because that could tell us how well they're utilizing oxygen or how well their cardiac output is able to deliver oxygen to the tissues. Um, this came out of also your required reading. Um, it's a nice little chart. talks about the different variables that they test for. Um, many of you have heard of VO2 max or your... Um, uh, this, this peak VO2 kind of tells you how well you're performing cardiovascularly. Um, I believe for adults, the, the norm is usually above 33 or 34. Um, you know, your high-performance athletes are usually in the 40s, 45 or higher. Um, those that, are, that have poor VO2 max or have poor cardiac conditioning are usually below 30. Um, <clears throat> on those readings. So this is a chart. This is just for you to evaluate, to see the various different things that they look at during a stress test um, that, that allows the cardiologist to make determinations on future care or prognosis. The other thing you can look at too, um, and I, this has been more of my experience with the stress tests, um, is for those patients that have not had cardiac surgery, but do have some type of um, arrhythmias or suspected arrhythmia, um, specifically those that have had syncopal episodes. So, you know, with syncopal episodes, they do want to do a cardiac evaluation and many times they'll do a stress test. And what they're doing is they're inducing exercise to see if the patient has any type of tachyarrhythmias. And you can look at this ECG tracing. There's very, a lot of variability. Looks like there's even some ventricular involvement here with the, with the PVCs that you see um, that are scattered throughout. Um, and this allows them to evaluate further. So if the patient has like Brugada syndrome or AVR and, uh, AVNRT, um, various different types of um, arrhythmias that need to be treated either with medication or they need to go to the cath lab and have an ablation done. Um, this is very helpful. And in some cases, they can determine um, if someone is truly having a syncopal episode versus you do have some patients that can fake it and you really can't fake it with this type. Now let's move on to the labs. Um, now all the labs that we've talked about thus far in the program may be used for a cardiac evaluation. So you may use your CBC and for many patients who have cardiac, chronic cardiac conditions, you're going to be looking at your electrolytes because some of the therapies such as diuretics um, can alter those electrolytes. Um, you're going to look at renal function because if you have poor cardiac output, you're going to have poor renal um, function, um, as well as some of the other end organ um, diseases. So this, this is not exhaustive to every, for every test you would run on a cardiac patient. I want you to understand that what we've taught you thus far is going to be building upon. Now, some of the cardiac specific tests is what I really want to get at here. So... The first one is your high sensitivity C-reactive protein or your cardiac CRP, which it's also referred to. 
Um, your CRP is an acute phase reactant. It tells you about inflammation. However, the high, sensitive, high sensitivity CRP is more sensitive and specific to the, um, to, you know, more sensitive in a specific test. So it is, it is um, a, re a reactant protein that's, that's produced by the liver and the hepatocytes, and then it's released by your interleukin-1 and interleukin-6. And it's definitely way more sensitive than a CRP. Now, normal values are typically like less than one. Um, those that have had cardiac patients in the past know that these numbers can be relatively high. I've seen them, you know, in the 100s, 1000s, the 10,000s. I think I've even seen one close to 20,000 before. So um, depending on how severe that patient's cardiac disease is, is dependent on where the variability is. Now, once you get a baseline number, you can repeat check. You can repeat checking this the high sensitivity CRP to see if your therapy is improving, to see if the inflammation is residing. So, oftentimes we'll get one on admission, and then we'll follow it as we treat the patient to determine if 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 it's getting better or if it's it's getting worse. Next, we have our our N terminal pro. B-type natriuretic peptide, or also known as the NT-proBNP. Um, and this is a, a protein that's released that will actually trigger the hormone BNP, which is known as brain natriuretic peptide. Now that's a hormone that's secreted by the myocytes in the ventricles, and it's, re it's due in response to stress and pressure that's placed on the myocytes. And that kind of tells us if there's any type of strain or stress on the ventricle. Um, normal range for this is usually less than 100. Um, above that, we can screen or diagnose congestive heart failure in our patients. The next one is the high sensitivity troponin. Troponin has classically been used in adults to evaluate for coronary ischemia or myocardial ischemia or myocardial infarction. Um, however, in the pediatric population, we do use this test for patients that present with myocarditis. So it's not very common for an average healthy teenager or child to come into an emergency room or a clinic complaining of chest pain and them having a, a heart attack. That's pretty rare. Usually your patients that are having true Chest pain related to uh, myocardial ischemia are those that have had cardiac surgery or they have some type of arrhythmia that is uncontrolled. So they have other issues going on. However, patients with, uh, that present with myocarditis will have an elevated troponin and their troponins can actually fluctuate. So they can actually come in very high. Next day, you, you know, the next six hours, you check it again and it drops and then it can go high again. Um, so it can have more variability. Unlike someone who comes in with a myocardial event, they would have their baseline level and it would, it would keep increasing until it peaks. And I believe the, the old traditional troponins used to peak at around 17 or 18 hours, and then they would drop off as you've treated them and improved um, <clears throat> their coronary blood flow. Um, looking at, and especially when you look in your textbook, the, 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 the diagnostics textbook, the reference ranges for high sensitivity troponins are all over the place. So I didn't bother putting them here. You really have to know which 
reference lab your institution is using or the lab that you use for your testing um, to look at what the what their reference range is. But it is recommended that you do initial testing on admission. Usually this is done in the emergency room. And then if they get admitted to the, the acute care service, typically the ICU, you're going to want to check it every six hours as you start treating the patient and evaluating to determine if they truly have myocarditis or some other. Now, that leads me right into myocarditis. Now, with myocarditis, when we do the workup for these patients, they have a lot of things that are being done, right? So we're going to look at the ECG, right? And typically in these patients, you're going to see some ST segment changes. And they usually have arrhythmias. And these arrhythmias can range from bradycardia to tachycardia to SVT to ventricular arrhythmia. Um, they may have some conduction delay. Um, and it also may show up like what... A, a true acute coronary syndrome is. Um, and we do know that if you start to see some seg ST segment elevation, right, um, these patients typically may have some type of pericarditis involvement. And I've seen this in the ICU uh, many times throughout my career, specifically with patients that do have either a true pericarditis or myocarditis type picture. Now, the echo is going to look for any type of structural damages, any, um, usually you can see some thickness of the septal wall, or if the patient's cardiac output is poor, you may even see some thrombus formation in there as well. <clears throat> Again, your, your lab work, you're going to have an elevated CRP, an elevated troponin, elevated pro-BNP, just like I mentioned previously. You're going to see some leukocytosis or increase, increasing of their white blood cell count as well as an increase in eosinophil, eosinophilia. Um, these patients may require a coronary angiogram in the cath lab, and that is just to completely rule out any type of coronary syndrome. Now, again, in most of our pediatric population, I, I've not seen this done very often, unless there is truly concern um, that there might be some coronary involvement. Um, and traditionally, when we worked these patients up years ago, especially early in my career, we used to do a lot of viral antibody testing. Um, this really kind of has somewhat of a low yield, um, mainly because there is a huge list of different viruses that could cause this. But there's also other causes. There's bacterial causes. There's syndromic causes. There's other things that can cause a myocarditis. Um, so... I mean, we do still run these, but we don't, it's, it's not something that I think is highly put on the uh, guidelines. It's not placed high on the list for guidelines. Um, the endomyocardial biopsy is known as the gold standard um, for diagnosing myocarditis. So this will actually tell you that if you do or do not have myocarditis. Um, and again, this would be done in the cath lab. And then the one that's probably done most of the time, at least in my experience, is your cardiac MRI. And this allows us to evaluate the myocardial muscle itself to see if there's any um, changes there which could help with making the diagnosis. So when you look at your viral agents, here is a list. And I pulled this from one of the articles that I have for you to read this week. Um, and there's, there's a ton of them there, right? Um, but I also like this image here because these are the ones that you probably will do classically. So you have your enterovirus, Coxsackie virus, both A types and B types, Epstein-Barr virus, um, hepatitis uh, type C, 
um, your human herpes or HHV6 and your parvovirus, the B19. Those are ones that are classically sent. But again, if you don't have a positive on your um, PCRs for these for these for these specific viruses, it doesn't mean that you don't have a myocarditis. It just kind of helps you identify the cause. Now, when you're looking at the cardiac MRI report, again, I don't expect you to be able to interpret the MRI um, or the images from the MRI, but there are there is some criteria that we look at known as the Lake Louise criteria. And the, and the MRI has to have at least two of these three findings on the film. And the first one, they'll look at the T2 weighted images. And these, you'll see an increase um, or intensity in the signaling um, for the, these images. Um, the second criteria is an increase in um, global myocardial gadolinium enhancement. So, um, the radiologist may call you if you're working in a clinic or they may call you if you're working on an acute care unit and they may tell you that the patient did have some increased um, gadolinium enhancement um, on, <clears throat> the, on the images um, and the, T, you know, the T1 weighted images. And they may also tell you if there's any types of focal lesions um, or non-ischemic areas on the late gadolinium enhancement. So when you're looking at the reports, you want to make sure you interpret um, or understand that these three things would be criteria to help rule in myocarditis. And that's the end of our presentation for this week. Um, you have your discussion board posts. Uh, I look forward to reading those um, at the end of this week. And if you have any questions about the cardiac disorders um, or di diagnostic workups, please reach out and let me know. All right. Take care.